welcome to Employee of the Month. Here's your host, Katie Lazarus. Is that a real owl? No. Okay. Welcome back to Employee of the Month. On this episode, we're going to hear from Lauren Unerich, who created Awkward. If you are a big fan of My So-Called Life, Girls, Judy Bloom, or just women in general, this is one phenomenal television creator and writer who makes sure that she gets authentic and genuine voices of young women on television. I feel like she's revolutionized MTV. I actually want to tune into the channel now. Granted, I'm not their normal demo, but she manages to be honest about the fact that, yes, teenagers do, um, you know, they engage in biblical relations, um, but they can also be smart and heartfelt and thoughtful human beings and make lots of mistakes despite their best intentions. So please enjoy my interview with her. She did also write on 10 Things I Hate About You before that and went up the ranks actually starting as an assistant, just to give you some background, and then and higher level as an executive and has had a relatively quick rise in hindsight, but at the time really put her time in. Um, and she has a new show that she's working on with MTV as well. So we'll get to hear a little bit about that and that it's at the beginning stages right now. She's still working on the scripts, but cannot articulate how exciting it is to find a strong female who does really funny comedy and is still completely open about how she's learning along the way. Not that those don't exist, they do, but there are not enough of them in Hollywood. Even though it's changing, it's definitely changing. We've got Amy Poehler, we've got Mindy Kaling, we've got Tina Fey, we've got Lauren, we've got Emily Spivy. There are so many people, Elizabeth Merriweather, Leslie Headland, all these women who are starting to take over and it really does feel different. When I started in stand-up, I was told that I wasn't effable enough to perform at one club. So I feel like my entire future has changed because of people like Lauren. So here's my interview with her. Lauren, how does it feel to win the Employee of the Month Award, which you're not even going to get yet until after the interview? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm a really hard worker, so being Employee of the Month feels like it's my fair due. It is you know, fair it's due. my fair due, but you know, hey, I'll take any award. Thank you. you I'll take an the, award. You did get the People's Choice Award for your show, Awkward. Well, not yet. We've been nominated. Sorry. Yeah, but hey, you know what? Maybe that's a good omen. Freudian slip. We won. That was a Freudian maybe even slip. slip. Yeah, no, that's okay. But we've been nominated. It- Which, by the way. As people say, like, you know, the the reward is being nominated in and of itself. And, and I agree with that. You know, we're never going to get an Emmy or be nominated for an Emmy because I, there's a lot that goes into play to, like, campaign. And our network is so cheap. There's no way they'll ever put a campaign together for us. For although On MTV. Yeah. Although I would contend, and obviously I'm biased, that Awkward is one of the best written comedies on the air. And better than a lot of the comedies that were nominated for Emmys this year. And I stand by that. I think, and I think a lot of the critics in the country would agree. It's also changed the landscape for MTV. Like, I'm 36, I'm not exactly MTV's normal demo. Mm -hmm. I love your show. It's why I contacted you. I think it's so. Thank you so much. And smart. And, and, um, it's probably one of the best teen shows I've seen in so long because she has sex. She is a good person, Jenna, the main character. Yeah, she's um, real. She's real. And then they're also, like, biting, and I love 
Oh my god, I'm so obsessed with the cheerleader. Oh, Sadie, isn't she just uh, amazing? You're welcome. Yes, she's just amazing. Uh, Molly Tarloff, who plays her, is just awesome. And oh, I just want to say, like, I'm not a total asshole. I'm talking about how great my show is. I have an awesome team of writers and people who work on the show, and I just feel like we just get overlooked all the time because we are on MTV. And despite being on MTV, which I love MTV, I have to say that like they've been so wonderful to me, yes. and I love being part of rebranding that network and script. But despite sort of, you know, people sort of look at MTV as, you know, Jersey Shore and some of the stuff that I'll be honest, guilty pleasures for me, but people think it's garbage that they they overlook us in this in in especially in Hollywood, in the business, like people are starting to feel like we are we have credibility and I feel that way. And I'm not in Hollywood yet, but like I do think of those things as garbage and I do see that them as guilty pleasures, yeah. but I feel like you've brought the network back to where I remember it, where it was this really cutting edge network, and the Inbetweeners is a hilarious special show. show. Yeah, it just got canceled yesterday. No. Yes, it's, it's terrible. So My friend funny. Mike is so upset. He was the biggest fan of that show, and it was a good show. It was a great show. Brad Copeland is a wonderful writer who's the showrunner of that it show. It was so funny. It was a great show, yeah. But unfortunately, like every other network, if a show isn't getting the audience, and I think that there are problems with programming at the network, which I will say quite openly. I don't think that they figured out how to program their, their, including my show. We don't have marketing. We don't have programming that, that, that really supports the show. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, Wow and Snooki was not a great lead in for us. Um, and we did better than Wow and Snooki. Not just spiritually. And, and-, <laughs> <laughs> and listen, I'm not trying to trash my, I, I love, I, again, I love the people I work with. They're still figuring it out. And, and I think as with any fledgling network that that's part of it. And, you know, I, I'm just so grateful. I will say this. I'm so grateful to be able to like live my dream, do my job and that people found my show. Mm -hmm. I feel like my audience and the audience for the show totally was sort of this grassroots movement where kids found the show and it was very cool. And then they took ownership of it and started to spread the word. And that the critics in the country from David Wigand at the San Francisco Chronicle, who constantly has said the most lovely things and who I feel like I, you know, he's so incredibly, he's such a great critic. And um, I'm so humbled by the words he, you know, by his love for the show. And Mike Hale at the New York Times yeah. has been so generous and kind and um, and so many other critics across the country. It's, it's, it's an interesting proposition to be in because I feel like we've done something really special on this show. We've been this little like, people really love this show. And, and yet we don't get noticed in the business. Mm-hmm. with the same credibility and love that we are being noticed by the press, which I think is very strange. Um, and yet and we have a wonderful audience. We have a big audience. We Our audience is almost as big as, you know, new shows like Ben and Kate and the Mindy Project on Fox. So this is what, let's, let's actually start at the beginning. I want yeah. to go back, or not start, but let's segue to your start as a writer because it is incredible to see how someone who started as a writer is now balancing all these other things, like when you're talking about being aware of the networks, the ratings, the critics. I mean, you, you become a producer and a director yes. from that. So I well, want, wanted to start at the, the beginning with the writing. Can we start like at the writer's strike? I think that was the time where your career sort of took off. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, just in, in this, the scope before then, it'll be really, I'll thumbnail sketch it. You know, I went to college. I didn't know what I wanted to be, so I interned. You I worked. Bryn- I went to Bryn Mawr and then I transferred to Claremont McKenna where I graduated. 
I worked at a think tank at the Foreign Policy Research Institute in Philly. was my first internship. Then I worked for a financial consulting firm. Then I got an internship in D.C. for the McNeil Air News Hour in the last year that Robin McNeil was... Uh, it was when it before it became the Jim Lair News Hour, which I guess is now about to be defunct. If not, it's defunct. I can't remember. He's still if doing he, softball questions. Softball like questions, yeah. Okay. For, yeah. And I'm uh, sure he's very, very nice. But I also he's a very he was yeah. very, very nice. Um, I remember he took naps in the afternoon before they would go to air. Oh, that's awesome. So, yeah, those are things I know. But it is crazy because it's so far away from from what I do now. And yes. and then I had a, like a short stint at CNN. And I realized I did not want to be in the news industry. And a friend of mine who went to Wellesley was like, there's this, you know, alum that uh, is she works for our film producers and I can put you in touch with her. And I interned that summer for these ladies, uh, Donna Roth and Susan Arnold, um, Roth Arnold Productions. They had made Benny and June and they were in the process of making Unstrung Heroes, which if you haven't seen is a brilliant movie. Diane Keaton's directorial debut. Donna Roth's dad was also in the film business. Donna Roth, yes, yes. And she was married to Joe Roth. Yes. So um, they, uh, I don't know Joe Roth, but Donna Roth was a lovely person to intern for. And, um, and so was Susan Arnold. They were very, very lovely. I kind of like was I couldn't believe that you could have a job where you read scripts and you worked on movies like that. That that was a job. So then suddenly and I had been a huge drama geek as a kid and in high school and won a lot of awards doing drama. Mm -hmm. But I didn't want to be an actress and I didn't really see legitimacy in pursuing film school at the time. But I had been directing and I had always had an interest in writing. And so after that summer, it was the summer before my senior year, I decided to write and I wrote a screenplay. I didn't know what I was doing. I just sat down and took a and read a book. I just after an internship, I just had read enough scripts that I thought I could do this. So I sat down. I didn't even have final draft. I didn't even have screenwriting software. I just like wrote on a Word document, you know, which to me is hilarious. Anyway, that became my senior thesis. And it was called The Plight for Mr. Wright about a girl who in her failing attempts to find a job decides to find a husband instead. Very antiquated but hilarious in 1996. Yeah. Um, You're my age. Yeah. I know. I'm a 38-year-old woman who writes about teenagers because I still am a teenager inside. I'm still a teenager inside. I don't care. I don't care. I'm, I'm stuck at that stage. Me too. It's such a wonderful time because it's when you really truly are like figuring out your identity outside of your family. You still have the protection of your family because you go home every day. But when you're at school and on weekends and stuff, you're really deciding who you are as a person. Like you're really branding yourself as like who you're going to be as a person. And it's an exciting time and a scary time. But when it works, it's great. You know, like first love. It's awesome. I also like that you'll talk about how it's very evident and awkward. Um, that leaving the house can also be a good thing because, you know, when you're talking about the family being protective, like oh, yeah. getting out of the house was one of the most healthy things well, I could possibly do. <laughs> uh, 100%. I mean, like, listen, I'm a product of two. My parents both worked and they're both interesting, awesome people. I mean, I'm this total extrovert who was raised by nerds. And my brother is also where like Palace Verdes, where I set the show, Palace Verdes, Rancho Palace Verdes, Palace Verdes Estates. It's like a nouveau riche enclave of Los Angeles County that I think I have a lot of love for. And I'm so glad I don't live there anymore. I can make fun of it and I love it. And clearly I was raised by a PV mom and I have a lot of PV mom friends. But I also like to make those pals of Rudy's mom. Like it's the moms that live there. And I have and I make fun of them in my show, too, because some of them are just absolutely ridiculous. And I enjoy it. You know what I mean? And I tried to set 
the show in a world that I could really write about and make real and like play with and, you know, write what you know and put it in a setting to bring authenticity to the show because I wanted to bring authenticity to it. But I do think getting out of the house is important. I was, I am so not my mother's daughter. And at the same time, I am so my mother's daughter. That is the thing that it, Jenna what, what and... What are the ways that, that for you personally, you feel like... Well, I feel like the only thing that would I would say that is similar to Jenna and... Jada and Lacey's relationship that is also similar to my relationship with my mother. My mother was an older mom, so she was not a teen mom. Yes, yes. Uh, she was, she, uh, she's not, a, you know, my mom's a bit of a tomboy, so she's not this, like, girly girl. Oh, interesting, because you write girly characters. Oh, totally. I was, I came out of the womb super girly. Like, my mom didn't know how to do my hair, like, as a little girl. So, like, I had, like, one hairstyle she could do, and then it was, like, a series of bad hairdos. And, I mean, to this day, I'm still figuring it out. And, like, was parented, like, by my friends teaching me style and stuff. My mom didn't have any notion of, like, how to style me or anything. And uh, my mom was a baby of the Depression, so she was, she was born in 1939. And so she was an older mom, and, like, her mom had raised her... And her mom was an older mom. Her mom was 42. She was raised by a very puritanical, different sort of Victorian values. And then she was progressive in her family, but still carried some of those things and put and, and was a very progressive, cool mom, but at the same time had these very sort of Victorian values that she did instill in me as a girl. My mom's like sense of language and uh, you don't, as a woman, you don't talk about sex and those things. And and then I hear she has this daughter who like not only talks about it, but writes about it in such a like open forum. Yes. I was also a very touchy feely, like expressive, emotionally expressive or wanted to be. I became that way in college and in, in my adult life. But in high school, I was expressive to my friends, but not to my family. Mm-hmm. I felt like I wasn't okay, even though it's totally safe. I, my parents are awesome. But it, that's not how we were raised. My parents, they were not openly affectionate with each other. Therefore, I was raised by tentative huggers. You know what I mean? Like, they are the warmest people in the world. But I am a warm hugger and my parents are tentative huggers. You know, they're awkward, like weird huggers. Anyway, um, which is totally going to be. I'm going to write something called tentative huggers. Um, you know what I'm talking about. This is like, if I, can I do Hillary yeah. Clinton's handshake? Yes, that's exactly what. It's like that's a little bit. Yes, it's a tentative. But she knows your name and she says it back to you. Yes, and that's like so lovely. Yeah. And it's the thing is that like I am the product of my environment. We all are. And so I like who I am. It's taken me years to like who I am, but I really like who I am. And I wouldn't change anything about myself. Maybe I'd lose 30 pounds. But even then, I'm like, okay with my body. It's it's I'm fine, you know. Um, And and also intellectually, did they, um, it sounded, I've, I've heard you on other interviews, you know, talk about you, you were not the golden child in your family or what? I don't think my brother or I were golden. We were the only children. Neither okay. one of us were golden. I think what it was is that we have parents who, even though they were, I mean, they definitely were like dream big. They supported every pursuit we wanted to do. Okay, they did do that. Mm-hmm. But they also put onto us their own interests. So if we are pursuing something that they don't find interesting, they support it, but then it's not as interesting to them because they're nerds. They're like intellectual. My parents are total intellectual snobs. Whereas my dad it loves entertainment, loves movies and all that stuff. Could not be more proud of his daughter. I mean, I bet you my father is still clicking for People's Choice Award for us right now. He's like voting for it. But he falls asleep when he watches my show. It's not for him. Yet it was my father who took me to see all the John Hughes movies and loved them. Okay. So I will say to my dad all the time, how can you not like my show? It's right up the alley. With everything you loved, but he was taking his child to see a movie about teenagers. I was eight when I saw Sixteen right. Candles. And I think 
when you're living it with your kid, you can vicariously go through that journey. Whereas he embraces the show and loves the show to the degree that his daughter wrote it. Right. I, I would think the generational but thing also would. would my mother-in-law is a fan of the show. Like she's a fan of the show. She'll call me after. I mean, it's like a different level of awesome that I married somebody whose mother validates what I do in a different way than my parents. Like for my mom, like she'll write me a detailed criticism of an episode that will be quite lovely and interesting. And she'll always have great things to say. But sometimes I just want my parents to like call me and say, that was awesome. And And again, leave it at that, you know? And so in my relationship with my mother and I write about it in the show, I mean, it's through the lens of this other relationship. My mother taught me to be a good person. So the fact that Jenna makes decisions that are intrinsically, she has this very strong moral compass. That is my mother's in me that I feel the need that even when you are put upon, you still come out the other side thinking about the other person. Cause that's how I was raised. My mother raised me with a devil's advocate approach to putting yourself in somebody else's shoes, which I love and I employ and it is part of me. And I have a really hard time extrapolating that set sense that I, I feel like I have to martyr all the time to the point where as an adult, I've had to learn how to, to actually take care of myself sometimes. Yes. And it's okay to be selfish because I was raised by such a selfless mother to, you know, being selfless can also be a detriment. Like, people shouldn't Absolutely. be so selfless. Wait, so let's let's go back a little bit to, because I took you off track because I got so excited looking at the parallels between yeah. your life and awkward. Let's, let's go back to... Um, My career. Yes. Okay. Be, and I think this does feed into it. I think it is important to know how someone oh. experiences life as their... Well, and I want to go back to the mother-daughter relationship because yes. I also think that when you have a parent that, that is pushing you, that like when I told my parents, I called my parents and I said, I want to go to film school. I want to get a master's degree. I want to go to producing school. I wanted to go to the Stark School at USC or the UCLA's producing program, which is what I applied to. I thought that that was going to be my... I didn't understand how to get a job, so I was going to pursue a path and that, that through like a, a yeah. master's degree that I would be able to get a job through those yeah. kind of connections. Anyway, I didn't get into either program. I got an interview for UCLA's program, and I didn't get into either, which I think the irony is that, like, I did two internships, three internships at the point that I applied. They didn't know if I was a sincere candidate or whatever. What does that mean? I guess, like, I didn't have enough. I don't know I don't know how they base their... I, I, the irony is, like, of, of a lot of the people I know have graduated those programs, I'm the one that's really working. That's good for me to hear because I got rejected. I was doing a PhD in psych, dropped out to do comedy and trying to do writing, and I got rejected from MFA programs. So well, Okay, so here's my feeling on that. Not that those programs are bad. There are awesome programs, and I know people who went to those programs and do quite well and really love them and had a great experience. I learned on the job. I am a total – I was super bummed – that I didn't get into those programs. And then I and spent my summer. Yeah, this is like two years after. And then I had to have that summer internship for Roth Arnold Productions. And they had a deal at MGM. And then the, I had my senior year of college. And then at the end of my senior year, I worked for uh, Arnold Copelson. Went and, and became a filmmaker. A, yeah. Filmmaker. And went, he is film. I only interned for movie producers. And then I went and I worked for, for Arnold Copelson that summer and then got a job as an assistant. And then I was an assistant for a year and a half and then got a job as a creative executive for another company and oh, was wow. there for two and a half years was and that? was writing on the side RKO Pictures. Uh-huh. Not a great company. Awesome experience. Worked with terrific people. Terrible company. Terrible boss. Ted Hartley, I will say on the record, is the most ridiculous human being I've ever met in my entire life. And what are the particular ridiculouses? 
ridiculous. He's man. kind of like the absent-minded professor who, like, every wanted him to die. Like, this is a true story. He married Dina Merrill, who was the sole heir to Marjorie Merriweather Post's fortune and E.F. Hutton's fortune. Sole heir. So, you know, I guess it's going to put her sort of in close to a billion bucks, right? Somewhere in there. It's crazy money. She was a young starlet. She married, like, Cliff Robertson. Like, that was one of her ex-husbands and had a kid with him. And she married someone else. And then Ted Hartley, who was a charlatan. A charlatan. I mean, his resume, if you look it up, says he, like, flew, like, fighter jets or something. I don't think any of it's true. That he went to got his MBA from Harvard. Totally not true. <laughs> Um, so this dude is like in his like late seventies. Okay. And he's running this company. His wife buys him RKO pictures, the old movie studio. So he has film rights to almost all of those old classic movies, right? Not some of the big ones like Citizen Kane. He didn't own the Orson Welles owned his movies, but owned like suspicion, like Alfred Hitchcock's suspicion. This job had like archives of all the unproduced scripts. Like I found an unproduced script. I personally found an unproduced script from 1942 written by this guy, Richard English called a, a very remarkable fellow. That was a project for Cary Grant and Veronica Mars wrote a letter expressing how desperate she was to play opposite him. And it. it was this awesome romantic comedy to this day should be re rewritten yeah. and made. It's so good. Oh wow. It's oh, a, wow. it's so good. Brilliant. And the letter should be a preserved. Oh my God. I have these old letters. They're so cool. And all the correspondence between Alfred Hitchcock in telegram form to the studio about the ending of Suspicion. They have all of this stuff. Oh, they do. Okay. They have all of it. And, of course, I made photocopies and, like, keep them in my own perfect – I mean, they're so cool. The shit that we go through as artists today is the same shit the artists went through back in the day, except – you know, you had to like, I can't even believe people would type out scripts and whatever. Anyway. Oh, that's um, right. You know what I mean? A typewriter and then you have to go back and make a type. I mean, I don't, I mean, it's just like, a, you know, like nowadays it's like you go and you constantly rewriting. Maybe we, people shouldn't be, re, have the luxury of rewriting so much that they're maybe making it worse because I guarantee it's like, uh, let's not change that thing. Or, well, it's just like, you know what I mean? Like Absolutely. people probably just kind of went with their, you know, a lot of first instincts. So I worked there and never, and nothing could get made because Ted Hartley just, he just would, anytime a deal would be close to like making something happen. I mean, we were working on a movie with John Woo to direct and Jonathan Mostow at the time and like Frankenheimer before he died. And I mean, you have to understand, like it was like film school for me. It was the coolest thing, which is why I say film school is awesome, but fuck it. If you can't get in, go get a job, go intern, go get to be assistant. Just like you can teach yourself. Yes. You can do by reading good scripts. I just, I always tell kids who want to write, I'm like, best way you learn to write. I didn't take classes. I took some workshops later in life. I learned by doing, by just sitting down and writing and by reading good writers, right? Reading great scripts, finding my heroes and then studying their craft and then working on my craft. And uh, man, I love writers. I love, love, love writers. I love good writing. I love meeting good writers. I mean, I'm still like a crazy fan, man. I met Jason Kadams. Uh, I'm a big fan of Friday Night Lights. Uh-huh. And I was just like, oh, my God. And one of my writers this season was like an even bigger fan than me. And I, <laughs> I made him sign a napkin at a cocktail party for her. And Friday Night Lights, though, because I read it as a book first. And it is the only 
thing that has been as good as a book, as a film, and as a television show. Totally amazing, right? I don't, I don't think there's anything in the history that, that amazing. has been as good in different forms. And every form has its own life. And totally has its own life. Totally. It stands on its own. Totally. And that book is one of the most formidable books on learning about the South and on football culture. It's in it crazy. It's in it. And then that show was just like, and I loved the movie, but man, the show took it to another level. And, and the storytelling, it was just brilliant. How they were able to write about people being good people and that that's the conflict. Yes. The yes. conflict inherently in that show is about people being good and staying good. And then they always were good. And that good always weighed out. And, I mean, even look at, like, Buddy. I mean, Buddy Garrity, you know, he, you're like, oh, that guy. And he's a good dude. He's flawed, but he's good. And at the heart of it, the coach and his wife, I mean, they, you know, Eric and Tammy Taylor, man, they were never going to give up on each other. There was never a moment where you thought they were going to get separated. Wait, so let's get back because I, I want to okay. go back to so another I went good back. dude, you. <laughs> so I – Worked at RKO, and then I wrote – I was writing features with a writing partner. And at the time, I wasn't totally writing with him just yet, but we had come up with the idea for a movie. I found a young writer to write the movie, hmm. and we sold it on the down low while I still had an exec job to Warner Brothers. And then um, I got totally royally fucked in that deal, and that's when I finally decided – from now on, I'm never going to give my ideas away. I'm going to write them myself and own my ideas. What happened? Why? We, I brought a producer on to protect me, and in the course of protecting me, he fucked me over. And that that was that script wasn't actually sold. It was set up, and it was optioned, and there was a director attached, and the option lapsed, and I got the project back, and nothing ever. I mean, I tried to make it for about nine years. I really did work on it, oh, and God. almost got it made a couple times. And then you know, you just get to a point where you're just like. I'm not going to work on this anymore. Yes. I still love the project, but I just got to a place where I just put my energy into other things that I could control better. And so I wrote and sold a couple other features with my writing partner. And then we got into TV and we sold a bunch of pilots. And then during the writer's strike. Can you talk about like selling things? Can you, because I'm someone who like I used to do commercial auditions. I'd get the call back every single time. Never once booked. Never once. And I had <laughs> agents on both coasts and really big agents. So what is it like to actually sell? <laughs> so, you know, there is no – I don't believe people will tell you that they think there's like uh, – some people will tell you. Not everybody because there are like awesome people in this business and everybody has a different way of doing it. The The art form of selling is like you've got to rate something that gets you in the room so that you can pitch something, right? So you like – there's that. So you got to – the skill of writing is different than the skill of pitching and pitching is an are art form. Are you saying form. I couldn't pitch for craft? Yes, I could not. I was terrible. <laughs> You could I meant, absolutely. I meant for commercials that oh, I like, would yeah. and, and there was part That's of That's a whole like, other craft that I don't know. But but you, you being an actor. But it's like being an actor. You have to go in and sell yourself and your story. You have to go in and perform for executives. You do you do act it out. I will do well, everybody's different. I write my pitch is like a script. It's scripted in a pitch form. I don't know how to explain it. But like I'll I have to go in and sell the idea of like what the show is. And along the way, there are gonna be moments that I'm going to be pitching them, maybe acting out, maybe doing something. But I try to write my pitch in the most entertaining way possible so that I'm not just going in and saying, and here's is a story about bloobity bloobity blah. I want it to feel like interactively entertaining. And yet at the same time, not so much that it feels like I have a shtick that they feel weird about. If right? I give you if I give you a topic, can you can you pitch it? No. Okay. I'd have to prepare it. Okay. I'm I'm not a I'm not a genius. No, no, no. Like, that, that, that was more of a, I didn't know if it was like 
like an improv thing, like no, like well, like for example, like I was hired to write a movie for ABC, or like it was a pilot that then turned into a movie for ABC Family, and they all they wanted was we want to do a show about a girl that's half mermaid and go, and I was like. Okay. And then I went away and I thought about it and like how I was going to do it. Well, it's going to be a girl. I wanted to feel like it needed to feel grounded because it was heightened and how would girls relate to this? And, and so I called it something fishy and I said, and then I came up with a tagline. Usually I come up with a tagline of like, what's the tagline for the show? In the sea of life and love, every girl feels like a fish out of water because she's great right so I would come up with something like that and then that would help me kind of define it and then I thought well like she grew up in Montauk because her mom had an affair her mom had a one night stand with a merman that's like they met on the beach like whatever (laughs) and so like all these years her mom has been raising her a single mom being like like telling telling her like your dad was you know he's royalty and all this so she grew up and then she kind of like as she got older got a little more cynical about it mom doesn't want to tell me she had a one night stand well there's kind of truth in both mom did have a one night stand with a king he's just king of the sea you know (laughs) (laughs) so yeah no it's really fun and I had a really good time but like I always try to find something and like find a way to sort of pitch it like that you know what I mean to tell you like you know I'd give you sort of the backstory in a really fun way that you really can identify it and it can ground it into our world but also that it has a heightened magical quality to it right and then I set her journey she's out of college, she's 22. She works on an island because we got to surround her with water because she's gonna be a mermaid in Manhattan, which is a big island, as, yes. as evidenced by the Sandy oh, Storm. Yeah. Yes, I live the, in Brooklyn, so yes. I know the island well. Uh, which was immersed in the water, and who knew those subways would fill up so so quickly? Um, through the course of the writer strike, when I had this writing partner and we had worked together, who and I love my writing partner, we're still good friends. It, um, I wrote a play. I was single and I had had a bad breakup a couple months earlier and. The writer strike became fodder for my romantic life and my writing life. Um, Did you go on a date on the writer strike? I had a love triangle. I mean, it was in my head. I, I had like a picket date with one guy that I met. I'm not kidding. I like completely objectified this guy on the strike line. What, you were harassing him? No, yeah. I just watched him. Oh, okay. and, I had this uh, we were strike. We were all pit, striking together, mm-hmm. and I just objectified him and was like, "Oh my god, that man is beautiful. I can't believe he's a writer." Because writers, inherently, no offense to writers, are not inherently strapping like lumberjacks this guy yeah right exactly or like uh, well you're beautiful i don't i wouldn't say that you have a face for writing podcasting (laughs) (laughs) that's not true that's not true i would say that like you know listen i'm I'm married to uh, a creative person who's also a writer and he i think he's a beautiful man but i but you don't normally see these like strapping like former football players. Oh, yeah. uh, I mean, like his guy was like a manly man. I always think they're going to be more safe. Yeah. I'll be like, oh, he won't cheat on me. And it's oh, actually no. like it's, it's the opposite. better to go with the manly man who like, yes. had a socially well-adjusted high school experience. Exactly. And has some balance than the guy who feels like now that I'm smart and successful, I can be a pussy hound. Yes. Um, and, and, and women now find me attractive because I'm funny. Yes. So um, those are the things we didn't realize when we were younger. Funny is the key to like sex appeal yeah um so i objectified him and then i went home and i i can't kid you not like i was never going to see him again because it was just that one strike thing that we all met up at and i had no idea what his name was who he was whatever i got matched with him on eHarmony. no joke so there started a correspondence then became a picket date we we basically (laughs) shouted and outside of a location to try to shut it down during the strike 
And, uh, and then we never really got together. We were supposed to, but he was leaving for the holiday and whatever. And then, um, I dropped it and then I went out again. And this guy that I had seen him hanging out with asked me on a date at a picket thing that he wasn't at. And so then I went on a date with this guy who then turned into the weirdest guy who then we made out after we saw a movie together, he squeezed the shit out of my tent and then asked me to leave his home. It was the most bizarre thing in the world. So then I, I had to write about it. Oh, absolutely. Well, I felt so rejected on so many levels, too. And anyway, so the I, play I became... I wish I could pretend that has never happened, and yet, like, I am single. And it is so scary out there. And this is the yeah. best outlet. It's the most cathartic. And I think it's helpful to other people. Totally. <laughs> so I wrote this play called Love on the Line that, that got produced for a charity event for below-the-line people who were out of work because of the writer's strike. It was called TV Takes the Stage. There were 20 one-act plays by TV writers. I was probably one of the lowest-level TV writers that wrote a play. And my play sort of became this hit. It's fabulous. Um, and we put it on. I had people pretending – like I, Lauren, was the the lead of the play. And I wrote this little, you know, 15-minute play. Were you in it? No. I had casts. I cast up. I put a beautiful actress to play me. And then I cast these guys. I didn't call them by their names. I called them the Magic Whistler and the Bullhorn because that's what they were doing when I met them. One was whistling and one was had a bullhorn. Anyway. And um, and then I, and then I ran into them right before the play went up. I was thinking like, oh my God, this is so funny. What if they just came and they like there they saw their story of like my love story or whatever with them. The love triangle that was going on in my head. N not really. But it was just like how I thought of it. Right. Like, it was, right. it was a love triangle in my head. I ran into them like the day before, like almost ran into them. I saw them. They didn't see me. Thank God for those picket signs. I threw it up and put it in front of my face. And then I like booked it out of there. I left the picket line. I was done. I had already done my three hours or whatever for the day and, and ran home because I lived next to Fox. <laughs> and I couldn't even believe I saw them. I was like, oh, my God. Then the play was like a big hit. And then months later, I just really thought about the, the Magic Whistler, the one that I'd sort of lost touch with. And thought, man, if somebody wrote a play about me, I don't want to read it. So I sent it to him. And then we became friends. That's great. And it was a really awesome. The bullhorn who squeezed the shit out of my tit, like, never talked to again. Shocking that you're not No, him. no. But, um, <laughs> that he doesn't have social skills. Totally. But I totally, um, I mean, I don't keep in great contact with Magic Whistler, but I, I just had a really close friend write on, the, he, he writes on a show. And they became friends. And he, he, like, my friend was like, I'm totally friends with the Magic Whistler. And I was like, what? And I, you mean, like, it's just funny. Yes. I, but we've, we have, like, a lovely sort of, like, thank you for being my muse is sort of how I look at it. He's married now. And as I've heard, he's a baby on the way. I'm very excited for him. And I'm happily married now, too. And I, I feel like we should commingle, uh, like, with his wife and my husband just because it's, like, a fun story. But this wasn't that long ago. So from the writer's strike, you get all the meetings from, from this play. No, I didn't really get – I had already – I had written a pilot that sort of got me a lot oh, of meetings too and then the play and then I made a web series and then oh, – What was the web series? It's called My Two Fans. Okay. Okay. About a, and actually the, the idea came from the play because I had these two guys who came to see the play and then they Facebooked me and they were like, where are your fans? And so I went to meet my two fans because I had two fans, which I had never had before. And I was like, a single woman and like great. broke. And I was like, I have fans. And every single woman I felt like should have fans. And then came this crazy idea of like, what if there was a show or a movie or whatever about a woman? And, you know, um, I, I can't remember what the tagline for that one was like. Every single woman needs a fan. Kate Maxwell just happens to have two. And like, and so, and I totally think that that's 
true. And so we made this little web series. I had this company. They approached me because I had been making some funnier diet videos uh-huh. with my friend Barrett Swadek, who's an actress that I love. And she's a muse of mine and also a brilliant comedy person. She's terrific. She's also plays Aunt Allie on Awkward. And, oh, um, awesome. She's terrific. Uh, so she starred. What? It's my two fans. We can check it out on on Funny or Die. Or it's just my two fans dot com too, okay. and you can find it on YouTube. You, so it's sorry. not on Funny or Die. YouTube, Coldcast, you can find it on all a bunch of Great. sites. But if, I think it's still up on mytwofans.com. I don't own it, so I had a company that paid for it and I made it for them. But it basically was my first time show running. Mm-hmm. I wrote, directed, produced, costume design, production design. <laughs> like I did everything. Because the budget of my 16 episode web series was $30,000. So That's with a everything. Lot of money, though, for a web series. For a whole 16 episode season, it's not a ton, but it's a lot. If you can extend it, and I shot a musical opening number. I mean, $30,000 is a lot of money, but, you know, I paid a crew, and I paid oh, I actors. Mean, a lot of money. I mean, it's a lot of money for a web series, meaning that web series oh, pays usually, so little. I, yeah. I don't oh, totally. By the way, I didn't make that. I made, like, Bupkis. It was just, that was the cost of, it was a six-month endeavor, so that yes. thirty grand took care of six months of a crew and yeah. editing and music and everything, but I had to go find a composer, and I had to, I had to do everything that a showrunner does. Yes. Everything. So then... That that went up. I went and I worked on staff. I got a staff job writing for 10 Things I Hate About You. It was a very good experience. I met Aaron Ehrlich, who now is my right hand on Awkward. And from there, I realized I didn't want to go back. I really wanted to pursue my own stuff. And then that... Why was that? You know, I worked for lovely people with lovely people. It was a fun show. I just felt I wanted to have the experience. I wanted to go work for other people and feel what it was like to work on staff. If you don't love the day-to-day, it's a, it's exhausting to be talking story for 10 hours. It's even exhausting for me to talk about story that long on my show. But to be on somebody else's show, and if you don't intrinsically love the characters or the storylines or whatever or the show, I liked it. I didn't love it. And for that reason, it was hard. Yes. All I wanted to do was please my boss because he was a very nice guy and I just wanted to be a cog in the wheel who did a good job and made his life easier because I wanted the experience and I'm so grateful for that experience man I learned a lot but at the end of the day it wasn't fulfilling creatively mm-hmm. uh, I have to admit I did fall asleep in the writer's room once or twice I was bored sometimes mm-hmm. and that that is not a disrespect to anybody and I, I probably feel terrible even admitting that but I had the opportunity where Awkward was something I had pitched right before I got that job and I couldn't sell it because in order to do this TV job, the ABC family wanted me to be exclusive to them during the writing period as a staff writer. I totally understood that. So I put it on hold. MTV then had this whole like change of guard. And I was like, oh, my God, is the guy who was going to buy my show he's still there? He was still there. So after I decided, I basically, he sent me an email I'd finished the job. I took a vacation with my boyfriend, who's now my husband, and came. Did you guys meet on eHarmony or on? A no, no, no. We met at we met the old fashioned way, like through friends oh, at a at a party. <laughs> and uh, it didn't inspire a play. No, my love story is just very boring. Other than I met the greatest guy ever, and through friends. So that was awesome. We have a lot of mutual friends. But uh, I took you off track, though. You were talking about being on 10 Things I Hate About You. Yeah, and it was a wonderful experience. And they asked me to come back to write if the show was going to get picked. They didn't know if it was going to get a pickup. And they they asked me to come back, but they had lost the period of time where you have to pick somebody up. Mm -hmm. They asked me to extend, and I didn't. I just kept pushing off extending it because I didn't want to go back. But at the same time, I was still trying to figure out, should I go back? Should I continue in the work? And 
while I was in Mexico, like literally two days after I had left, I had finished my first season work and was done. I got an email from my MTV executive, Justin Levy, saying, we're going to buy your show. We're ready to buy it. Are you ready? Let's do it. And I was like, do I have to pitch to anyone else? And he said, nope, I already ran up the flagpole. It's done. So I was like, I called my agents and I said, don't extend me. I'm going to go write this because they're not going to let me to do it. And I wanted to do it. And it was less money to write the pilot than to be on staff. But I didn't care. I just want to bet on myself. And I just had a feeling if I could nail this show, it was going to be special. And then another gift sort of by betting on myself, the universe gifted me again. A producer really loved me at CBS and he went to his studio and said, give her a blind deal. And so they gave me a blind deal. And then they. What's a blind deal for people who, who don't? A blind deal is like where they just say, we're going to just pay you a, a money to write a pilot for us and we'll decide what it is when we decide what it is, but we're just going to bet on you. So you don't have to sell the idea. They buy you. Blind deals can be terrible, by the way. They can hold you hostage because they have you for like a year mm-hmm. and they can just pass on every idea you pitch them. So you're beholden to a deal that you can't write the things you want to write. But they actually liked the first idea I pitched them. Mind you, it became something it wasn't originally. And I did the best I could. I wrote like a multicam, like a, a traditional sitcom, yes. right? With a, you know, on live studio on sitcom. Awkward is a single camera show. It's not a multi camera show, which, you know, feels a little more filmic, feels a little bit more one hour, yes. you know? You have our current in general. I mean, I in general. Although those sitcoms, man, they do big money, big numbers, cheaper to produce. A lot of them are bigger hits than the single cam shows. The single cam shows tend to be more critically acclaimed, where the sitcom, although some of them are critically acclaimed, like How I Met Your Mother and Big Bang Theory and, and all that stuff, but like the single cameras, you know, tend to be sort of like where you're going to get your Joneses off a little bit more in terms of like being artistic. And the sitcom tends to be more commercially viable, viable, bigger ratings, all of that good stuff. So, um, no interest in that, but yeah. I have to say after writing one, I have no, and I have no interest in sitting in a writer's room and pitching jokes. I'm not a a joke pitcher person. I'm a story, jokes come with the story and ideas come with the story. So I was kind of like done with that and writing the pilot. And then, you know, by the grace of God, like I turned in my first draft of Awkward and they, at the time, the working title was called That Girl, which I knew was never going to stay because of the Marlo Thomas. But uh, (laughs) that was just the working title for it. And, yeah, finding a title was a whole ordeal. It is a whole ordeal. To- it, oh, my God. You, they test titles. I mean, it was a whole crazy thing. And, <laughs> this um, is good to know. You go through so, so much. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, Over the biggest, seemingly minutia, and also not letting the writer just say, this is what my title is. Oh, my God. It was such a thing. No, they, they're, they're collaborative with you. They don't force you to pick a title. Okay. You can definitely say, no way in shape or form. I wanted to call, when we couldn't call it that girl, I wanted to call the show Kill Me Now, which I thought was really funny. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that didn't work. But, you know, I just had this gut feeling that it was going to go and everything was awesome between selling it, writing it. Justin Levy, who's my executive, like is like a brother to me. Like, I and mean, he's, he's got yeah, a new one from you too, hot mess, hot mess. I mean, clearly we love working. We, we, we are so funny too, because we really collaborate really well. But when we disagree, it's like brother and sister. You know what I mean? It's really passionate. Um, and it is really funny. God, I love him. He is one of the best executives in terms of like really making you feel like he's your partner and also getting behind you and supporting you when he needs to. And 
man, I just hope that guy has a long career because he's a really special person. Can you talk about that a little bit, though, like negotiating and fighting for what you want? Oh, God, it's so hard. And now I'm totally spiraling. I just want to acknowledge that I'm totally spiraling that, like, I was talking so openly about the love of my show and that we totally get dissed all the time in awards. And I sounded like such a pretentious asshole. And I hope I don't come off like that. Like, Oh, no. It's funny to hear the word pretentious and we're talking about an MTV. I know. I, but do you know what I mean? I feel like people get so like, pompous about... about I, you know what? Poetry? It's sort of like the other day I had this fancy agent. You know, like my agency treats me with such respect and I appreciate them. But they, this agent said to me something about how like working on my show wasn't like the big leagues, like working on a network show. And I was so offended by that because... Yes. My show is better than network shows, and I will stand by that. And that's not pretentious. That's just a fact. My show's better. Better written, better acted. And he was saying that, like, in the directing game is just such a different ballgame in the network show. Maybe there's more layers to it, but it's apples and – it's the same fucking thing. You can tell – if you look at my show, yeah, I don't have as much money. I probably have half per episode. You know, those shows are like – How two, much is that? Sorry, I have no idea. I mean, I have eight. The budget of my show – my bank account. Uh, my show is like about $840,000 an episode, whereas like a show like New Girl, I'm guessing is a couple million, like oh two million maybe. I don't know how much that show is. It's it's somewhere in there in that ballpark between below the line, above the line, you know, talent. Um, and, and do you have to oversee all of that as the creator and showrunner? I am totally involved. I mean, I have a line producer who manages the budget and the crew, but I'm involved in everything. I move money around in the budget. I'll go into him and say, like, we got to move this money around so I can do this. I mean, we work together. I write for the budget. It's complicated. You get better as you go. But that's what my training is, like, working on a web series and being involved in all that stuff and really understanding how do you write for a budget? How do you write for, like, where I'll have to say to my writers who don't understand, I'm like, we can't just write a circus. Yes. How am I going to build a circus? So let's figure out how we're going to do this or how we're going to write for this kind of location. But that's huge. Yeah. And I was just thinking about it. I was, like, thinking about how I was really offended when this agent said this. To, mind you, I really like this agent. When he said that to me because I was like, who the fuck cares that my show's on MTV? So it's in a different – it's still the same job. Yeah. The directing – and you can see, and there's great directors who work on my show, and they also work in the networks. And how is their work on my show different and less than the work on a network show? That's bullshit. That's absolute bullshit. And the people who work at the networks and the people who work with, there's no better or this right. or than. Like, that. just because they make more just money. They get paid more. I know. It's, or it's, that they have more marketing dollars or that there's some kind of, like, cachet to having, like, a network that has more success in scripted. That's bullshit and I find I find it to be offensive my feeling too is that I'd rather work at MTV and have creative control mm-hmm. than to have all the layers of bullshit that you have to experience at networks I'm not suggesting those people aren't smart and great and all of that good well, stuff you've also but written for networks so you have experience writing for I don't want to be back again I have to say like there might be a day oh go back to the network and I like a lot of network people and it's the same thing at MTV too like the process you have people who are making decisions and it comes down to ratings and it comes down to to ratings and to really comes down to ratings I mean is your show successful or not that's it like if my show starts to dip in the ratings I mean we'll get canceled too you know Mm -hmm. but you're gonna do tell me about hot mess also so hot mess is my new pilot it's like sort of if awkward is you know an homage to 16 candles 
in my love for 16 candles hot what mess the, what, was the, what was the guy I used to always pretend he was my boyfriend Matthew Mike, Michael Michael West. Shuffling Michael Shuffling yeah and in 8th grade Jake. Jake Jake Ryan Jake Ryan in 8th grade I broke up with Sam Russell for Roger Daltrey mm-hmm. who was the lead mm-hmm. um, in The Who because I thought it was unethical to like two people and mm-hmm. then I was dating Michael Shuffling and I would just totally pretend I was my boyfriend so oh totally bad. I'm right there but with probably, you I loved him I would be like no I'm I'm, have, I'm dating someone <laughs> You know what? Whatever you can do to get by. I, I mean, seriously. Yeah. I love it. I, I don't love... think he's ever acted again either. I think he like He did like a little movies. I think he's a carpenter, but yes. I but you know what? I understand that. Like I look at my life and I think if the day comes where I can't like write if I don't feel inspired or whatever, like hopefully I'll I feel like I'm interested in so many other things. Yeah. I'm only going to pursue what I'm interested in. Like I don't feel like I have to work in this business. I find a lot of this business ridiculous. Yeah, but like, I also has someone someone who hasn't been able to like sell my shows, and I feel so good about what I write, and I've never been able to break in. I feel like it's really good to have had that chance to do it and then make a conscious decision. Absolutely, I'm right there with you. I think that yeah, I mean, I, I can say that after having experienced and and, and say, still love and still by the way still loving my yeah. job. But the day I don't love my job, it's not worth it to me to struggle yes. to like. Because I think at some point what happens with a lot of people after they've been doing it for a long time is like, what else can I do? Oh, yeah. Well, that's also a valid thing if you're 65 or if you're 55. Yeah, but there's 36. like you can teach or you could do this. I mean, there, are there I mean, like, there okay, what else can I do that makes me this amount of money? Maybe that's the concern. But I, I will never be beholden by golden handcuffs. Like, yeah. I still live. Mind you, I own a house now. But I still live like a person who, for me, money can be an obstacle to creative freedom. And I'd rather have creative freedom and be able to make decisions that don't involve a a mortgage payment. And so I make decisions totally that keep me able to make creative decisions so that I don't have to take a job to take a job. Because I've taken those jobs. And... I've taken those creative jobs too, which by the way, when I took them were pleasures because I was doing something creative to make a dollar. Right. But as you get more entrenched in the creative aspects of it, it's even though I like, I love my show, I still have to have, there are days when it feels like work and I have to remind myself it's fun. And like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and, yes. but those days are fleeting comparatively. I'm so grateful that I do this job. I'm so grateful I have the opportunity to hire people. I'm so grateful that I'm the final say. I'm so grateful that I, when I, before I make the final say, I have incredibly smart people I can consult to, to give me, you know, guidance when I need it. How do you stay so sound in your own decision when you're, you're working with so many different people? Like I get overwhelmed just like by a manager, okay. agent, and oh my God. having different opinions. How, how do you stay on course? Because you have that by 1500 fold because you have all these people working for you as well. You, I just make decisions. I go on gut. I, it's how I write. I don't know how to explain it. I have tapped in to my inner gut. Okay. It's like an inner gut check. Last Luckily, year. mine's outer, so I'm fine. I'll be okay. <laughs> last year, I made a pilot with MTV called Dumb Girls. I knew in my gut it was good. It was not great. It never got to greatness. Hmm. And along the way, I knew that. I expressed it. Hot mess in my gut, I feel it can be great. Yeah. I read, and, the, I read the pilot. Oh, you did? Yeah. I just did a rewrite that I really liked, oh, too. Oh, no, I want to read that one. Okay, I'll give you it before you leave. Did you like it? I loved it, and I just love. I mean, the scene, it, I don't know how much I'm allowed to say, but it was yeah, on, you can. On, on, sure. just the opening with she's on this plane, 
talking to this young guy who's going through a love crisis and she has to go see her ex and she's gone from one wedding to another. I mean, I remember having two weddings in a weekend. It's crazy. I love the whole thing. I love her chasing after Ben and I like love oh my God. try to inter intervene. You, we, it's, it is, um, it's like sort of like, it's sort of like my homage to the Bridget Jones that I felt like when I read Bridget Jones, when it had come out, I was very much like. Come out to LA and not come out. Oh no no no! I'm not gay, and but I love I love me my gay friends. Believe you me, God, I wish I was gay sometimes. It would, might make things easier. Uh, no, but I am married to a man, and I love my man. But I also love all my gay friends, and and so okay, let me just say that so that I'm not anti-gay or anything. No, when it first came out as a movie yeah. and as a book, when Bridget Jones came out, it was like, oh my God this is my life. I totally get this. It was a character. And I feel like it's iconic and will always be identifiable. And the other night, my husband was sort of saying like, hot mess also feels like the, there are moments in it that feel like Cameron Crowe and say anything at the party, at the funny moments with, you know, Joe cries when he <laughs> lies, you know, all of that stuff in that sort of grounded, but like ridiculous sense of like people who are trying to get over uh, being dumped, you yes, know, I'm going through, and, I'm going through it and I, it really hit, hit home and that she has this sort of torch, you know, this whole she's trying to get closure. <laughs> but in truth, there she wants to just revitalize a relationship. Yeah. And because we've all been there and done that and you don't realize how bad something is until it's really, really over until you get real clarity. Ben is a fun character who, if it goes to series, I have a really clear vision for this show of where the series is. like, yes. And I know exa the last minute, I know oh. the last minute of the first season. Okay, I know the what, last what moment. That, what, is what is it? I can't tell you. No, I want to know. <laughs> I got so worked on this pilot. It's sort of like where Awkward has been a love triangle. You between love love triangles, I will, I will say. I don't Hot Mess is a love square. Fabulous. There's Jonathan, Ben, and potentially Nick. So there's very she's her with three different guys. Her Achilles heel of an ex-boyfriend, her best guy friend, her when Harry met Sally relationship, yes. and then the guy who's her Aiden from Sex and the City. You know what I mean? Who's right for her. Yes. He's the right guy, you know? Did you marry the right guy? Oh, my God. I married my best friend. I married the love of my life. I married – oh, my God. I have the best husband. We we The conversation, like – we started talking and we haven't stopped since we met each other. And this all happened so, I mean, the other thing that's so inspiring is from the writer's strike to now, you've gone on to create your own show. You have another show that seems like it's going yes. to go. You fell in love and got married. Like it does Knock on wood, I hope it goes. I love this show. But it was yeah. a short period. I met my husband a year after the writer's strike ended. And that's when my career took off too. It's like all within the same time. And then he met me. He met me. I went straight into like a staff job. Like my poor husband didn't know me as sort of like a very lax, a lot of downtime, a lot of time to like have brunch on Sundays. I, I met him and I was working all the time from the time I met him until we got till now. I mean, my husband, my husband, thankfully, is also a creative person who worked in commercials, who I have swayed to come work on the show. And he does music on the show. He, he's the music coordinator. He works with my music supervisor. He's also a story consultant. He co we co-wrote a script. My husband's been working on this show from the inception of it because when I wrote the script, like that, the idea of her, her cast in this upward position was his idea. There are scenes like in the first and second season that I bantered with my husband at like two in the morning when I was writing. And then this season he's been in the room and I mean, he never had had that 
he had never done that before. Just a total natural. You would be a natural in a writer's room. I have, ah, just have a feeling. But it is also inspiring because of Tina Fey. Her husband does music. Music. Also. Well, yeah, I know. I think that like I think she has a good marriage. I think if you find somebody. You know, it's always a, it's a scary proposition if you don't collaborate well. My husband and I collaborate really well together. Like yes. he also gives me space when we disagree, and I'm like, but like I just have vision, and I'll just be like, this is my vision, or I can collaborate sometimes, and I'm open to hearing other things. Totally, like I feel like let the best idea win. I love working with other people. I'm also um, fascinated by seeing um, successful smart women um, and how they balance having a relationship because I want both and I believe you can have both you can totally have both it's very hard there are times when my husband's like put the blackberry down <laughs> you need to take I mean our 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 squabbles I'll call them I won't call them fights our squabbles really revolve around him feeling like I don't take time for myself yes and that also includes him like that we don't go do and, and he's right I and but I try like being able to work with him has been really fun we work well and then sometimes we'll go out to dinner after work you know or you know the hardest part about me and like because he'll say all the time he's like you you have a work ethic that like and I tend to work with people who have similar work ethics so I feel very much at home in the fact that I'm a workaholic and that yes, I love work totally That's and that I love it and I love it but he was said to me he's like your work ethic is just really like abnormal and inspiring and like it's not who I am as a person his work ethic he's a very hard worker and he's like a taskmaster and like incredibly professional but he's not driven in the same way that like keeps me up at night and it's not driven to be to see my name in lights or any of that stuff not at all it's I'm just driven to see my ideas come to life and and that I love it and that I live it and they live inside my head and I'm a storyteller and I love it he's driven too in the same way like he's a cinephile like he loves music and art and like he gets mad because I don't have time to go see a movie in the theater. I'll have time to watch it at home when it comes out on DVD. But right. the fact that we aren't going to see it where it should be seen in the theater makes him, you know, a, a perturbed, you know. And <laughs> I like appreciate Woody that. Woody Allen and Annie Hall were mm-hmm. like, oh, we missed, we missed the, the opening, the yes. trailers. He was yeah. upset about the trailers. Totally. And, like, my husband's the same way. And, and I appreciate that. And that's what I love about him is that he grounds me in that he is a workaholic in the artistic sense, which is the time you need to take to watch other art and process that other art in order to be a more effective, creative inspiration yourself. Yeah. yeah. Right? And I feel like I do take that in. He takes it into such an extraordinary amount that I benefit from it because he influences me in such a great way. And I'm really like, oh, his influence, I, I, I admire him. I respect him. He is one of the few creative people that I'll look at and go, what do you think? Right. How do you and, think? And really want his opinion. And he's just so smart. I don't know how he knows everything. He knows everything about cinema. It's crazy. And he's such a good writer. And so we kind of help each other out. Like he's just learning craft like in a different way and I'm learning from him. And it's it's a wonderful relationship. You can have it all. It's just you have to make time. How do you sleep? How, how much do you oh, sleep? Oh, I'm a sleeper. Oh, I God. need to sleep. Oh, God, I need to sleep. This is the best part of the entire podcast. I want to just hear this. Okay, <laughs> so I don't. I Exercise maybe as much as I should, which is why I would like to gain 30, lose 30 pounds. I love to exercise, by the way, too. So I try to incorporate. I'm trying to have more balance. Every year I'm getting better at being a little more balanced. What did you do in 2012 to get more balance? I exercised more. I started to make a concerted effort to um, eat better. But you shoot on the weekends. You shoot on the weekends. Well, now we're going to shoot. We do shoot on the weekends. Um 
I sleep. I do okay. sleep. In production sometimes, like I'll just go home and go to bed. I, sometimes I'll have work to do and I'll have to go home and work. But you're so in it. Like your mind, it's something, you adapt or something. Like I don't know how to explain it. I'm not somebody who can live on five hours of sleep. I have done it, but I don't do it often. I need seven or eight hours of sleep minimum. Okay. Okay. (laughs) This is a minimum. I do believe people are different. I believe I need to sleep and my husband doesn't need as much sleep and we can be, we're different functioning human beings. But I also, I try to keep my head a happy head. So I balanced out the anxiety too. Like I try to see my friends. I try to make time. I've also tried to like cut out What's hard, Katie, is that, like, I like to help people. i still very connected to the person who needed a helping hand in the business. So I try to do that as much as I can. But I can't do that as much as I used to be able to do that. So I'm trying to find a way that I can still help the people that I care about and that I know. And that the randoms that are, like, the front of the front of the front, I can't do that anymore. Yes. You know, but I'll try to – But I'll learn – Yes, and I have a hard time. But my assistant is wonderful, and he'll help those people out. So, like, I work with people who are also wonderful people. I believe in being a good person and that you pay it forward. I look at everybody that I work with, and I hope that one day they'll hire me, right? Because I'm not always going to be the boss. I also learned along the way that I'm better working with people than for them. Yes. That's a fact. Yeah. And I think people should identify. There are people who would would say that they work better for people than than with them or being the boss. You know what I mean? Totally. I just don't work better when I'm on equal playing fields. You know, when you have a show, you do for me. Like at the so end of the day, the buck the buck stops with me on this show. Can I go back and work for someone else? Yeah. If the investment wouldn't be the same, for sure. Uh, but could I, but, but being that said, I'm a workaholic, so I'm going to want to please them. Yes. I'm going to want to do right by them. Totally. I have dreams about working for Aaron, who is my right hand that it's well, she, partner. She's a, she's not my producing partner. She's, she's the other executive producer on the okay. show. And then I have the line producer and we're together. We are partners in the sense that we all make the show together, but on this show, the buck stops with me. I make the final decisions. I always am super open and collaborate, but there are times where I'll just make the call. Yeah. And there are things that I do that I have to do that, like, I just involve me with the network or whatever, making decisions and, and, and designing things and whatever. But she's in the process of, of writing a pilot now, and I, which I love. You know, it's one of those ideas that, like, man, I'm jealous that I didn't think right. of that. <laughs> and I tell her all the time I'm jealous of it. And, um, and man, I, I have a, I have a gut feeling about that pilot for her in the same way I felt about my feelings for awkward when it was in a nascent phase. I just have a feeling about it. So we talk about it and she's like, will you come work on the show? And I was like, of course. And I dream about the day that like, she gets to make all those decisions that I have to make and that I don't have to make those decisions that like, like they're all on her. She can, she can (laughs) carry that load and that I'll just have the luxury of being there to support her and do right by her by writing a good script and like just wanting to please, you know what I mean? Like to just that we can switch roles, like would be awesome. So for that reason, I think I could do that for someone like her that I love and I admire yes. and I respect, and she's amazing. And maybe and, the relief that you're talking about, where you can just focus on the on the writing. Yeah, and then I can go home and have kids, and like sometimes I can tune out. I can never tune 2. out of this show. Two point five. She, I mean, by the way, she works at, like on the show like none other. But I, I think she has an easier time tuning out 
when I can never tune out. My job is 24-7, 365 days a year. I never don't have work on the show to do. Whereas when, when the show goes into post, when we're done wrapped, producing, whatever, mm-hmm. everybody else gets to kind of have a hiatus. I'm still working on the show. And so that's hard sometimes. But it's also a baby. It's like a, But most people in life don't get to have a, hi, a hiatus, so to speak. They take a two-week vacation. So I have a life like that. I get to have my two-week vacation, you know? Right. That, which is, which in and of itself is a pretty special thing. Yeah, but you know, but my job is my hobby. You yes. know, I, I I feel like I and I create oppor- I create jobs for people. I create yeah. hundreds of jobs for people. So by virtue of me living my dream, I help other people live their dream, and that's awesome. I feel like that's a perfect way for us to end because it's so beautiful. It's like one to grow on. Yeah. Well, Don't you remember that at the end of, like, yeah. and that's one to grow on? Yeah, and that's one to grow on. I love <laughs> um, that. Lauren, this was such a privilege. Can we have you back on the show? Anytime, Katie. This was, like, a total joy, and now I want to read your, your re- rewrite of your pilot. And I want to read your stuff. <laughs> now that I know you, Thanks. let me be a help, helpful hand <laughs> oh, to you. I would love that. Um, and I'm going to just tell people, if you have not seen Awkward, please go and watch on MTV. Even if you are not someone who watches television or owns a TV then watch it online because it really is worth it. Um, Lauren, thank you so, so much. Oh, my God, Katie, thank you so, so much. Thank you to Dave Steffi as well as Ian Mazoff and to all of you for listening. Please continue to subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud if you want to go to individual episodes and you are always welcome and encouraged to donate. Uh, It really means a great deal to us to have all of these fans. So thank you. And I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Have a good day. Wear a sweater if you need.